0: speaking, carrying on the theme of identity, and what we're doing is we're going through Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1 in the New Testament, it's a beautiful description of who we are in Christ, and we come to this verse today, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us, I'll read it again, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. I'll be honest, I didn't grow up in a Christian family at all. I had no Christian friends except one. And I was 16 years old and he invited me on a surf camp organized by his church. And I had gone to a little bit of a Catholic school, CBC in Greenpoint at the time. And um, I don't know what I heard, but I don't think I heard anything. And, um, you know, and I, suddenly on this youth camp, the guy who's the best surfer in the water, Roy Harley, he now heads up Christian Surfers Internationally. He's the camp speaker. So this guy blows my mind watching him surf in the day. And then at nighttime, after they feed us lots of food, we sit down and he shares stories. So this guy commanded my respects, being such a good surfer. And then he just tells story after story. And I kind of was like, yeah, 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 Interesting. And then one night, he told a story about God's forgiveness, and he had a few cool analogies in it, but it just got me. I think I was 16 at the time, and I had a few misdemeanors in my memory that were fairly recent. I got caught, and I, for the first time, gone, geez, I've done some dodgy things. That was kind of in my consciousness at the time. And he spoke about God's forgiveness, and it just gripped me. And uh, and when I was praying today beforehand, I I see that kind of God's kingdom is this house. You're coming home, but you walk through the door that says forgiveness. That's how you get in. You can't just, you've got to come in through the door that says forgiveness. Uh, There's this author called Little Boy, author of Little Boy Lost and the Village. She died a, a while ago in the UK, a famous secular humanist, a novelist. And she said this, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness I have nobody to forgive me. I have nobody to forgive me. And um, so I want to speak about forgiveness. Forgiveness. And um, some of you maybe never come into the family, never come into the home. Today, I welcome you. I, I stand at the door and say, This is the door that, that goes into the family, into the home. And others of you have been in this home, in the kingdom of God, for a long time. But you still need forgiveness because you still carry a sense of failure (laughs) and flaws in your life. You know, you sit out and you say, I want to follow Jesus. And then, you know, the months and years tick on and you notice some of the things that are wrong in your life. What to do with those feelings of feeling dirty inside. Uh, They take away from the joy of your salvation, that sense of a dark cloud of God's Disdain or disappointment with you, so common. Perhaps you feel like you've pushed God into a corner with your repeated failures, and you come to a place of despair, or even self-contempt. Maybe you're doubting that anyone, including God, could possibly be that gracious and forgiving. There must be a limit to His patience, you tell yourself. Sure, you once set out believing in God's mercy, but after all this, you might feel like you have out-sinned His grace. So against all of these feelings, saying to yourself, in Christ, I'm forgiven, it might feel a little bit tinny. But by the end of my message, I think that idea that in Christ, I'm forgiven, will you'll feel the weight of it. You'll feel the weight of it. And what I did in this message is I studied the word condemn. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek. And I found the word condemn, katakrima. And I looked all over the New Testament for where this word is used. And i piece it together in a bit of a sermon for you. So I've got five ideas that I want to take you through. Five points. And I'm going to start with the heavy one. Okay, I'm going to start with the heavy one. By the end, you're going to be going, wow. But do you mind if I just take you first to the heavy one? The first point is this, is that our sin is condemnable. Our sin is condemnable. And I get this from Romans chapter 2. You have no excuse for, whatever, for at whatever point you judge another, You are condemning yourself. You are katakrima yourself because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. So, if you haven't read the Bible before, you need to know that's not the only stuff in the Bible. Like yo, that is one of the more pointed verses in the Bible, and it's a fascinating verse because it tells us there is a day called Judgment Day, and we all stand there before the throne. And judgment comes. But it poses a little bit of a, it it requires some imagination, because it says, at the point at which you've condemned others, you're going to be condemned. So imagine throughout your life, you've got an angel walking next to you with a a clipboard. And every time you say the words, you know, those people really ought to, that person shouldn't have, you know, people must, and just write that down. You say words like, people should put others first. People shouldn't lie. People should be kind. Hey, we really should care about weak uh, people, you know, and, and marginalized people. You write it down. I imagine Judgment Day comes, the angel pulls out the list, and now the very standards by which you've held other people apply to you. Who of us will possibly pass that moment? We do have a sense of what's right and wrong. We seem to be pretty dismal at living up to our own standards, now, um, you're going, geez, and I thought you were trying to help us here, and I am, but nobody is helped by, by hearing the words, your sin is not serious. You go to a, therapy, a therapist, you feel guilty, and they say, no, 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 don't feel guilty. <laughs> it, and so much of therapy nowadays, and not all therapists, because there's lots of therapists that don't do this, but, but it's like you're hurting. It must be what other people have done to you. Let's talk about your parents' failures. Let's talk about the way your boss treated you. Those nasty people that have ruined your life. But there's not much thought about your part in some of what's gone wrong in your life. In the letter of Romans, during those school holidays, Julie and I went with our family to South Broome in KZN. And I was busy reading through the opening chapters of Romans, which is probably the of the whole Bible, the part that really breaks down What's gone corrupt in the human system? And it's got two big ideas. The first one is that God designed human beings to mirror his likeness. But our sin defaces God from our lives. God designed us to mirror his likeness. That's what it means to be in his image. But our sin defaces God of our lives. So we're meant to, as his image bearers, image his face, his likeness. And uh, the way the Bible puts it is we're still in the image of God, but it's like a mirror that's shattered. It's shattered. And Romans chapter 1 says that our thinking has become futile enough and our hearts have become dark enough to deface much of God's image from our lives. Instead of reflecting God's goodness to others and the rest of creation, at times, and it uses these words, it says that we are godless, loveless, faithless, and merciless. That'll preach, and I just preached it. And, and then Romans carries on and says the other thing that's gone wrong with the human system is that God designed us to be free, but our sin brings us under dark powers. God designed us to be free, but our sin brings us under dark powers. So, according to Romans, having defied our rightful king, we are, it literally uses this phrase, God's enemies. God's enemies, we're subject to God's righteous judgment. In other words, there is a hostili- an unholy hostility between human beings and their maker. We're now spiritually tyrannized by the twin powers of sin and death. This is all in Romans. We are all under the power of sin, Romans 3 verse 9. And then, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do, Romans 7 verse 15. Death reigns over The human race is how Romans puts it. I'm making the point here. I said this is the the heavy part of my message. It's going to get lighter after this. Sin is serious, so serious that it rightfully deserves God's condemnation. Okay, so that's but that's not the end of the story. That's where where it starts. The second point I got for 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 you when I studied this word, katakrima, condemn, is, is this on the cross Jesus took our condemnation. On the cross, Jesus took our condemnation. So you said, listen to the word condemn again. Here it is in Romans 8 verse 3. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. There's the word condemn, katakrima. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his son. Jesus is one of a kind. So if we are broken mirrors, Jesus is the unbroken mirror. He was not made as a replica of sinful humanity, by the way, rather in the likeness, that's the word used, of sinful humanity. About 100 billion people have lived in history, they reckon. Only one person, according to the gospel, is an unbroken mirror of God's goodness. Colossians 1 speaks about Jesus as the image of the invisible God who comes to restore the image of God in us. So Jesus is the unbroken mirror. Secondly, Jesus is the rescuing king. He's the rescuing king. So in the Gospel of Mark, it says that Pilate condemned Jesus to the, to the cross. Pontius Pilate condemned, cut a cream at him to the cross. So, so we may have defied God's rightful king, but the one thing humanity's rebellion got right was to unknowingly participate in our own salvation By nailing Jesus to the cross with the words, King of Israel, inscribed above his head. Now, we did this mockingly. The headpiece of thorns actually was the crown of his liberating grace toward us. And the wooden beam on his back was actually the throne of redeeming power that would set us free from the tyrants of sin and death. And then that Romans 8 verse 3 says, Jesus was a sin offering. Somehow on the cross, Jesus became a sin offering. God condemned in his flesh on the cross um, the sin that we should have have condemned us. Somehow Jesus deflects our condemnation on the cross. And then how, how do we receive this forgiveness? Well, Romans 3 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And here's the key phrase, to be received by faith. Jesus has broken the power of sin. He's paid the penalty of humankind's sin, but you still need to put your faith in it. You still need to put your faith in the work of the cross. And, and that's how you, you come in. When I was 16 years old, after hearing Roy speak that one night, I put my faith in Jesus. Hey, can just somebody, I put my faith in Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross became true of me. Okay, how are you guys all doing out there? Okay, then the third idea that I got from the New Testament, looking at this word condemn, and this is where it starts to get really awesome, is that, point three, claim your no condemnation status. Claim your no condemnation status. And I get it from Romans 8 verse 1, which says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so once you put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross, the, you get a new status. No condemnation is your new status. And this verse speaks about things that are both objective and subjective. So you know the difference between objective and subjective, right? You know, you're driving down the road. You think you crossed the speed limit but actually you didn't. So you feel like you, you did a crime and maybe the camera caught you, but then it turns out you didn't. Okay, So, so subjectively, you felt you'd wronged, but objectively, you didn't. Or uh, more common, you didn't realize you're going so fast and you're surprised by what arrives in the mail. Objectively, you, you transgressed the law, but you didn't feel like you were going too fast. Or how about this morning? I don't know what exact minute the sun comes out at the moment. Let's say 6.25. At 6.25, objectively, the sun rose, but many of us were sleeping through it. So the sun is there, but you're not experiencing it subjectively. It's only when you open the curtains, you're like, ah, although I'm still craving the full power of the sun, which is taking awful long to get going in, in spring. What kind of spring is this anyway? So the sun rises at a moment, that's objective sunlight, but you've got to experience it. So when it speaks about, therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ, it's speaking about both. Objectively, if you are in Christ, whatever condemnation is meant to fall on the human race doesn't fall on you because Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh on the cross, Objectively, there are no grounds for your condemnation. And uh, you know, if you project into the future, you're going to stand before God one day. The reason that you you know you get into God's eternal kingdom isn't because you're good; it's because Jesus dealt with sin on the cross. So it's so so it's it's cool to look forward to in the future. But Romans eight verse one starts with a very interesting word: now. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Not just in the future on the day of judgment. Now already it's speaking about subjectively. You can psychologically, spiritually experience God's forgiveness. Now already. You, you, can, you don't have to just know about it. You can feel it. You can feel it. And, and this is where we go wrong. When we, when, we, when we do stupid stuff that we know is wrong. What do we do? We fixate on what's wrong. We, we sin, but then we fixate on our sin, what we have done. But Romans 8 verse 1 says, no, 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 never fixate on your sin. Fixate on your Savior and what He has done with our sin. You see the difference there? And the Bible waxes lyrically about how the Savior deals with our sin. And, and two of my favorite ones are... He blots out our sin. Isaiah 44 verse 2, I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. It's like you've done wrong stuff, but in God's perspective, he's blotted them out. And then then this one, he hides our sin behind his back. You have cast all my sins behind your back, says Isaiah 38, verse 17. So the imagery is real. There's God. There's me. I'm looking at God. I've done bad stuff. Or I didn't do stuff I should have done. Because sin is not just sins of commission. It can also be sins of omission. You can get, stand before God and say, I never did a bad thing in my life. And God says, yeah, but you didn't really love many people either. You never poured out your life for the poor, you, you know. You stand before God and your sins are in front of you. And, and and what are we taught to do in a therapeutic culture? Well, you you gotta you take your sin and you put it behind you. It's like, yeah, I did bad stuff, but I've dealt with that now. The thing is, if God's here and you've sinned and you put it behind you, it's still in front of God. <laughs> I'm glad that you you feel great about yourself now. But listen to this verse: it says, You have cast all my sins. Behind your back. God's taken our sins. He's put it behind his back. He doesn't cast it behind our backs. He cast it behind his. David, in Psalm 51, said that his sin was always before him. But when he confessed and repented, God put it behind his back. So you claim your no condemnation status. Yeah, you've been following Jesus for some years and you've really screwed up. You claim your no condemnation status. You don't fixate on your failure. You fixate on your savior. She's that rhymed, eh? Failure, savior. Who would have known? Okay, I've got two more points for you. You guys look like you're engaged. Are eh? we following this? Okay, so my fourth point for you is this. Triumph over Satan's condemnation. Triumph over Satan's condemnation. Um, in some ways, some people reckon it's not hard to prove that the devil is real. You just, you just watch a, a docu-series about World War II. I did that with my kids. I said, guys, let me tell you what went down not so long ago. They cannot believe what happened in World War II. What is the explanation? I said, guys, the devil is real. <laughs> There's the evidence. But the Bible says the devil is not just a destroyer. He's also an accuser. One of the ways that the devil makes himself real is when you fail, he is an expert in rubbing your nose in your failure. Listen to this, Revelation 12 verse 11. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. So so here's a verse saying, our brothers and sisters, speaking about the common experience of God's people the devil comes and he accuses you day and night. He reminds you. God may have put it behind him, but the devil's holding on to this piece of data. You know, you've done this. Rubs your nose in that failure. See, when we fail and we experience condemning thoughts, these thoughts very often are put there by the devil himself. The accuser condemns us. And it says, Con- condemns us before our gods so even while you're praying it's like it keeps coming to you it's especially while you're trying to pray the devil amps up the accusation he amps up the accusation and when I first became a Christian um, the youth leader said okay guys after school on Wednesday I'm going to come to your house and five or six of us had become Christians and then he used to teach us the things we needed to know and I think on like the third week he taught us the difference between God's condemnation and Satan's condemnation, sorry, God's conviction and Satan's condemnation. I never forgot it. Don't confuse Satan's condemnation with God's conviction. You see, when we fail, we won't only experience the devil's condemnation, thankfully. We also experience God's conviction. And if God's conviction could be put into words, it would say this, hey, hey what you did was wrong. It saddens me, but based on the blood of Christ, you are still fully accepted. Get up. Draw close to me one again, once again. Let's start again. I've not given up on you. I never will. That's what God's con- conviction sounds like. Do you see that? So the, the devil's condemnation gets you focused on how sinful you are. God's conviction first gets you focused on how accepted you are in Christ. And only then gets you to own up to your sin. The devil's condemnation drives you from God keeps you in the dirt. God's conviction draws you to God, gets you back on your feet. The devil's condemnation brings despair. God's conviction brings hope. They're so different. Don't confuse them. Because I know lots of people who are being condemned by the devil himself and think that these condemning thoughts are God's. But I say, look at the effect in your life. You can't even look up at God. You become a worm, crumpled in on yourself, lying there on the floor. I don't think God put you in that state. It's the difference between Satan's condemnation, which, which just breaks you down, and God's conviction, with help, which helps you to stand up again. And uh, this idea of God's conviction overcoming Satan's condemnation is one that's gripped the Christian imagination. And many of the songs that the church has sung in history... Uh, give testament to this. Like one song says, long will the accuser roar at all the things I have done. I know them all and a thousand more. They're all covered by Christ's blood. (laughs) Oh, this is my favorite one. When when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Free. Good news, eh? so I said it started off heavy, but can you see why you actually have to go through the heavy to get to the awesome? And then I got one more point for you, it's this, face up to and forsake your sin, face up to and forsake your sin. Now now notice I only came to this right at the end, you'd think I'm just going to, the preacher's just going to say, everybody face up to how bad you are, stop doing it already you never, that's never your first point. That's your last point. You can't say that until you've made all the other points. So, so I'm going to explain this. And I'm going to remind you of my, one of my favorite stories of Jesus in, in the gospel. It's so powerful. The, the scene unfolds in Jerusalem. Uh, near the temple, where Jesus often imparts his knowledge, and as the sun rises, a crowd gathers around Jesus, eager to hear his words. I mean, John chapter eight, by the way. While he's teaching, the, some scribes and Pharisees—they're the religious leaders of the day—bring forward a woman caught in the act of adultery. Perhaps just hours before, has she got her clothes on? Hopefully, she's got something on. And in those days, that was a grave offense, according to. Jewish law. So go to the Middle East today and you can get a sense of, of how this could be dealt with. Their behavior demonstrates a double standard in how they treated the woman and the man involved in the adultery. They only bring the woman to Jesus despite the fact that it takes two to tango. See, the selective targeting suggests a bias against women and a willingness to hold them solely responsible for the sin, which is a manifestation of misogyny. So in their warped view of the relationship between the sexes, women were often seen as the seductresses, the temptresses, who led men astray. And if a man committed adultery, actually the real person responsible was the woman, not the man. Anyway, these religious leaders present the woman before Jesus, publicly shaming her, and they issue a challenge to Jesus, saying, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? See, they, their intent is to trap Jesus, forcing him into a dilemma. Either he advocates for mercy, and then he appears to disregard the law, or even or in, endorse her stoning, and then he seems harsh and uncompromising. So how's... Jesus is gonna deal with the situation and the answer is masterfully. Rather than responding immediately, and that's something to be remembered. If you're in a trap and you can't figure out what to say, say nothing. Maybe try this. Jesus stoops down and begins writing something in the dust with his finger. Try that. (laughs) The crowd becomes curious about his actions and presses him for an answer. After a moment, Jesus stands up and speaks saying, Let him who has no sin throw the first stone. Then he stoops down again, continuing to write in the dust. This statement has a profound impact on the crowd and the accusers, one by one, starting with the older individuals, maybe they're more honest with themselves after a lifetime of experience, they begin to leave, beginning with the oldest and then down to the youngest. Now, we can only guess what Jesus is writing in the dust. We don't know. Is he writing down their sins? (laughs) They're leaning in, what's he writing? I mean, he's writing down their sins. Because Jesus often had x-ray knowledge of people's sins in the room. And he'd use it so carefully in a conversation. So they start saying their sins. Or maybe he is writing out Jeremiah 17, verse 13, which is um, a verse in their Bible (coughs) about how God turns it, turns away, it says, those who turn away from God, their names are written in the dust. Who knows what he's doing? Whatever he writes, the accusers recognize their own imperfections and hypocrisy. So then Jesus looks up again, and he sees that no one remains except the woman. So he asks her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? So my question is, why does he have to ask her, where are they? Her eyes must be closed. It seems that her eyes have been closed. Perhaps she's buckling over, facing her hands, terrified that the first stone is about to strike. She looks around. She replies, no one, Lord. Can you hear the relief in her voice? Then Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you, katakrima you. Here's Jesus finding a way to spare her from condemnation. And as you can see, that is one of the stories of the, of the Bible, of the gospel. God finding a way to spare us from the condemnation that our sins deserve. But then these words, go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, hey, next time, don't get caught. <laughs> go now and leave your life of sin. When we're in Christ and we sin, God is for us with omnipotent love and inexhaustible mercy, but His grace should never be used as a license for sin. Instead, it should put us back in the place of grace from which we can face up to our sin and forsake it, own up to our sin and, 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 and move away from it. So those are my last two ideas. Face up to your sin. Nobody can face up to their failures, like their real, the deepest layers of their failures, until they know they are loved regardless. You catch a little child who's done something wrong and they've got the, they feel judgment's about to fall and you try to press them for, for con- own up, confess. They're gonna tell you a lie. They're gonna water it down. They, it's just too dangerous to say what actually happened and why they did it. I love this um, line from Tim Keller. He's a famous New York pastor who died this year. He says this, The gospel of grace means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are also righteous and accepted. So we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe but also more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more electrifying and precious and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance, the more you're able to drop your denials and self defenses and admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. See, when you know that you have no condemnation status, you can get super honest with yourself about the darker drives and the real screwed-up reasons that we do screwed-up things. So we, we can actually face up to because because it can be safe about the the dragons that lurk beneath the surface of our lives. By the way, I, everybody I know who's been a Christian a long time at some point is shocked by areas of darkness within their life. <laughs> they, they're shocked by it. But if we're going to get free, we have to call it what it is. We're going to name the dragons the dragon. We actually need to go under the water and own up to what's in there. But it's only God's grace that makes that Like a safe enough thing to do. And then, so I said the first thing is to face up to your sin. And then the last thing, forsake your sin. Forsake your sin. So like, hang on. If my sins are already forgiven and there's no condemnation, I'm just going to keep on sinning. Yeah? Yeah? So listen to what the author Sam Storm says about this. I just love this quote. He says, Though we have a no condemnation status, we are still capable of grieving the Holy Spirit and living in such a way to displease our Heavenly Father. It is here that we must distinguish between our union with God and our communion with God. When it comes to our union with God, our sin has no bearing. But when it comes to our Our lived communion with him, sin can disrupt, disturb, and undermine our capacity to enjoy what Christ died to obtain. Our sin no longer threatens our salvation, but it does pose an obstacle to our enjoyment of it. Our standing in Christ and our acceptance in the beloved is beyond the touch of sin, but our experience of God's goodness can sour and the joy of intimacy can wane. Say no to sin because sin undermines the joy (laughs) that salvation brings. The sweetness of relationship with God. Can I ask you to stand up? Can I stand on the stage? I don't know what this message Means to you, and, and I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. Maybe some of you, uh, you, you don't, you don't believe, even believe anything about Jesus, but you somehow here. I I hope that maybe you come a little closer today. You're like, hang on, maybe there's something here. Maybe others of you, you're right there at the door, like I was when I was 16 years old. You're like, today's the day I'm coming into the, I'm coming home through the door of this forgiveness because there is forgiveness for you. There's forgiveness for you. I don't know what failures you carry in your past, but I'm pretty sure you carry some failures in your past because that's what the Bible says about humans and every human I've known, that's been true. There's mercy and grace for you. You know, Jesus died for your sins on the cross. Your part now is to trust in him so maybe some of you in that place today today's the day you come home through the door of forgiveness that's a, that's a big moment in your life and I'm going to pray a prayer for you that Roy Harley prayed with me when I was 16 years old maybe I'll do that right now so, so what happened is Roy said hey, "Is anyone want to give your life to Jesus and I was like I'm not going to put up my hand before I knew it I had put up my hand put it down then he came up to me he says hey Tyron So you want to get right with God? And I said, yes. So then he sat down with me and he said, let me guide you in a simple prayer. And he gave me simple words. And I can guide you in that same prayer of trusting in Jesus as your Savior. You can do it now. Maybe you just want to pray these words under your breath, if that's you. Maybe you're coming home for the first time. Maybe you've, once were in the home, but you drifted away for a long time, but today you're coming home again. So here we go. God, thank you that you love me. Can you, can you pray something like that to God? God, thank you that you love me because it's true. You can say it under your breath. God, thank you that you sent Jesus who lived the life I should have lived, who died the death I should have died. Jesus, please forgive my sin. God, thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. You say those words. God, thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. You're alive. Come and live in me by your spirit. Take me into your family. Take me into your kingdom. Those of you that pray that prayer, hey man, I'm welcome, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family, the beginning of great things in your life. And then I'm especially thinking of those of us who've had this cloud over our head, <laughs> the cloud of failure, condemnation, unworthiness. Some of us have lived with that cloud blocking out the Son of God's grace so long that you actually plan just doing it the rest of your life. But today, this message breaks in and arrives with a long-awaited spring, <laughs> I want to urge you to claim that no condemnation status, to ignore the, the voice of the accuser, to own up to the failure in your life, to forsake it, but to forsake it because of grace, because of a relationship with God. That's you. Why don't you just respond where you are? Uh, maybe where you are, you just want to even lift up your hands and say, that's That's me. By the way, putting up your hands doesn't mean you've done something bad. You know, it's not like, oh gosh, they're going to wonder what I've done. Don't worry about anyone else. Just receive God's grace where you are. God's mercy. Just lift it up. Just lift up your hands. Receive God's grace and mercy. Reach out for it. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that the cloud of unworthiness and condemnation condemnation will clear away and there will just be the basking in the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus Christ. For in Christ, I am forgiven. This is not just a objective reality. This is something that is subjective. Now there is no condemnation. This day I enjoy my no condemnation status.